So uh, if you don't know me, I'm Becky Frazier. I'm the Missional Discipleship Minister here, um, I, which means I have the most fun job at Otter Creek because I get to help plug people into uh, things that they are passionate about, and that's just so much fun. We had a group of people out at Green Street uh, building yesterday, and it was an absolute blast. So, uh, And this is Fallon. Fallon is... Um, is now a member of Otter Creek West End, um, and then this is her husband, Nate. I'll let Fallon introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her. So Yeah, um, like Becky said, my name is Fallon Barton, and my husband and I just moved here. You guys are talking about feeling new. We just moved here a year ago, and um, we started attending West End, and so we've been with West End during this kind of COVID time as we've also been merging with Otter Creek, which has been super, super exciting for us, and we're really grateful for that that um, that partnership. Uh, really grateful for um, this opportunity to, to be kind of together as Otter Creek Brentwood and Otter Creek West End like this. Um, professionally, I work at Lipscomb University as the Director of Spiritual Formation, so I work primarily with undergraduate students um, as a minister, I help facilitate small groups across campus, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm really excited to, to be here with you all to, um, to talk about Micah. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to talk about um, the prophets. That was kind of the, the theme we were given was the prophets. And we chose Micah because uh, there are seven weeks in the, the semester of the classes and Micah has seven chapters, so that's uh, purely the only reason we picked it. Uh, there's a lot of great ones to choose from. Micah's a wonderful book, um, and so hope that um, hope that we learn a lot about um, about what was going on for God's people in the time of Micah, and learn a lot about how that impacts us and uh, what we maybe can learn or or take away from the prophets. So. Um, I've kind of subtitled this lesson, The Prophet, the People, and God. So we'll kind of be digging into the role, what we learn about the prophet, what we learn about the people of God, and what we learn about God. So pay attention to those themes kind of as we're going through. Um, have, have any of you guys heard of the Bible Project? Uh, if you haven't, I would highly, highly recommend it. it is, it's a great, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if organization is the right word, but they... Um, they have one of these little YouTube videos, pretty much about every book of the Bible, themes in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, themes of love, forgiveness, um, justice, all sorts of things. It is phenomenal. Um, I, there's, you know, of course, with anything, there's going to be things where I think, well, oh, maybe I don't, I don't know how I quite feel about that, but for the most part, it's a really, really excellent resource. So we're going to go ahead and watch a video that gives us an overview of Micah, what's going on at the times, and then it breaks down the chapters. And one of the things about the prophets is that, um, one, it's, it's to a specific people, but there's, always, there's also a lot of symbolism and poetry and things like that. And so sometimes when we read the prophets today, it, it can be a little hard to understand what's going on without some uh, help or exegesis. So let's go ahead and watch this. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moresh in the southern kingdom of Judah. About the same time. Can y'all hear that? Both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. 
And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel. Oh, sorry. I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so, most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with a poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake. But he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion. God's coming for them. But why, exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also, it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so, we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock which is the remnant of his people, and he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem, where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. 
So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing. And so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who is sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy. And he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis. That all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil, he will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. I wonder why it's doing that. All right. Oh well. <laughs> so let's just dive in and read chapter one um, together. Um. I know it can be hard to hear with masks on, so if you need me to repeat something, just let me know. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Does anybody remember anything about Hezekiah from history? Uh, he was near death. Am I right? That Hezekiah yeah. was talking about? Yeah, yes. Yes. He prayed one prayer, which I always thought was impressive, and God changed his mind. <laughs> and he lived 15 more years, and then he got all showy, showing all of his stuff, and he said, okay, messed up again. Yes, so absolutely. That's kind of a synopsis of what I remember. Yeah. That's great. Anybody else have any memories of what may have been going on in Hezekiah's time? Yeah, he was besieged. Yes. 
Yes, so the Assyrians came right up to the doorsteps of Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem today, um, you can still walk through what they call Hezekiah's Tunnel. Hezekiah had this massive building project that dug um, a tunnel from Jerusalem to a river um, not a pretty good distance away so that the people of Jerusalem could have water during the siege. So they knew this was coming. They were staying protected behind the walls of Jerusalem. You couldn't leave, but that also meant you didn't have food, you didn't have water unless you had a way safely to go get it. And so um, he was the king in the time of the siege of the Assyrians. Verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured out poured down a steep place. So this imagery is what um, we call theophany, and it is um, an encounter with God. And there's a few others that happen in scripture like the burning bush or like the pillar of uh, fire that went before the uh, Israelites in the desert. Um, There are some other places as well. Um, Isaiah encounters God on his throne with the seraphim and, and all of that flying around. And this one is interesting um, because it it sounds a lot like what happened when God met Moses at Mount Sinai. There's thunder, it's loud, it's a high place, but God isn't coming to make a covenant. God is coming in judgment. This is is courtroom language. Uh, Let the Lord be a witness against you. The Lord is taking the witness stand and saying, hey, we made this covenant and you haven't upheld your end of the deal of this covenant. So we need to have a chat. Um, verse 5, all of this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So at this point, we have the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The place of worship for the southern kingdom is Jerusalem and the temple there. And similarly, the northern kingdom had Samaria, uh, and they had their own worship practices there as well, um, which is you know, by the time we get to Jesus, we hear a lot about the animosity between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. Or, uh, yes, and so there's, there's already this animosity of we're, we're worshiping the right way. No, we're worshiping the right way. And God is saying, nah, none of you are. <laughs> I have a problem with all of you. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches. So one of the things that I found find fascinating about the prophet here is how much the pro- like the prophet is not saying, oh, you people, this is what's going to happen. The prophet is mourning with the people. He has heard this word from God, and it, it tears him apart. Um, he is, you know, stripped and naked, making lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. 
I don't, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard ostriches, but they make this like moaning, booming sound in the back of their throat almost. It sounds very, very mournful. Um, and so I think that might be what he's talking about here, this loud, like deep reverberating groan almost. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So what he's saying is this isn't, this isn't a matter of if you don't change, this is going to happen. He's saying there is, there is no going back for this. This is what is going to happen. Motion has already been set in place. This is an incurable disease. It needs to be remedied. And so now we're going to go through a bunch of cities. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Laafra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresh Gath. The houses of Achzib shall be deceitful things to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. So these cities, one, they're all cities in the north and the south that have that the prophet has grievances against. There are things going on here which he doesn't really get into in chapter one. He just says this is going to happen, and then we'll hear about some of the things in later chapters about what specific sins some of these cities have have done. But this is also sort of a play on words. So each of these cities, of course, has a name meaning. Um, Gath means um, wine press, like Gethsemane. Um, and so he's saying, weep not at all, like don't squeeze out any more tears. Um, in Beth Laafra, roll yourselves in the dust. That literally means house of dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. That word means beautiful. And he's saying, no, this isn't beautiful anymore. You're naked. You're, you're ashamed. Beit Ezel means the city next door, the city nearby. And he's essentially saying, there's not a city nearby to come save you. Uh, Maroth, that's, um, if you remember the story of Naomi, her name means sweet. And she says at one point, just call me Mara. That means bitter. It's that same root word there. Uh, inhabitants of bitterness, you're waiting anxiously for good, but it's not going to happen. Your life is still going to be bitter. So it's this kind of play on words that reminds people, I'm not just talking about this city, I'm talking about kind of the larger picture of people that are behaving in a certain way, everybody that's in, in this sort of situation. And it's also poetry, and there's poetic license. So, uh, And then the final verse in chapter 1. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. So if you remember from the video, there is going to be hope. There is a word of hope. This devastation never has the final word. But we don't get any of that in chapter one, unfortunately. Um, and I think... Um, I don't want to gloss over that. I don't. I, I want us to be aware that there is hope, 
But I also want us to remember that there were people who died. There were people whose children went into exile and were there for a very long time waiting for this hope. Some of them never got to see the fruition of it. They waited their whole lives for this. Uh, it, it almost feels like, um, you know, leaving the chapter just like this almost feels like a Good Friday service when you leave and you know that in a couple of days it's going to be Sunday, but right now it's really hard and right now it's quiet and it's heartbreaking and there's a lot of mournfulness in this. And so I don't, I don't want us to gloss too much over the judgment and get to the hope because hope is important, but it can't come unless there is judgment. So, um, so I know there's only a handful of us in here, so everybody's going to have to talk. We're going we're gonna to have a great, great class discussion um, about some of the themes. And, and I apologize, I should have asked you, was there anything you wanted to add to, to chapter one? Um, one thing at the end that's kind of interesting, just that last verse, um, is hair was kind of seen as a, a symbol of life in some ways because it took so long to rot in the grave. Um, that it, there was some sense of it being a, a sense of life force. And so the fact that it's ending this last verse with cut off your hair, um, shave your heads, uh, it just kind of adds, it's another, it's another measure of adding to that final um, thing. And you, you did a great job covering. Thank you for that. The exegesis was really, really good. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So um, I think... It's interesting to know about the history, about what's going on at this time, what was going on, but I think also the prophets still have a word for us today. And so I want to dig into what was going on then and how can it apply to us today, perhaps. So first of all, what stood out to you from this chapter? Given him a lot of uh, bad news here, that so far he hasn't really said what they've done. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. There's a there's a few hints of it that have to do with Samaria and Jerusalem, but the but God on the witness stand has not yet said mm-hmm. these things. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's a really good observation. What else stood out to you? Well, you can't help but relate uh, sitting here thinking about uh, today versus that. And uh, I think as you read that, you have a tendency to apply it. And uh, I'm not sure we want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. That's what jumps out of it. And uh, it's just kind of fascinating in a way. And then the other thing that to me was, it was a glimmer of hope, but Yeah. Oh, one other thing I was going to mention about the city names. We still do this today, right? Like some of the, um, like if a prophet were going to come today, he may say, oh, you Athens of the South, your fate is just like the Athens of, you know, Greece or... Uh, oh, Nash Vegas, um, <laughs> this is what's going I condemn you of these sins. We, we would know what that means because of our culture, and it's similar to what's happening here. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some play on words that these cities would have been familiar with. So. Do you think that 
easy to look at the Old Testament and not understand why all the laws, like sometimes the laws feel kind of arbitrary, like it's hard to understand why yeah. they exist, especially when you look at Leviticus and all that stuff. Such a strong chapter, such a strong emphasis already on uh, oppressing the poor and the powerless, that that's, that is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it kind of falls into the rest of Scripture and the things we associate with the New Testament. But yeah. yeah, it's just a good reminder that you know, that's a huge part of it. Yes. It's kind of always accessible. Yeah. It's kind of shrouded in life means and a lot of city and Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think too, um, again, with the Bible Project, I forget what the video is, but they've got a great one that talks about the law and the covenant, and they really framed it in a way that I had never made the connection of before about death versus life. Um, And so just like Fallon was saying about hair representing life, and they're saying, no, cut it off. Now there's death. So much of, so many of the laws are saying "This this is a symbol of life, and therefore it cannot be mixed with a symbol of death. Um, that's what some of the purity laws and things like that were about was these, this is to remind you that you are to be seeking life and death is part of this thing but, um, but God is coming to redeem those things and so um, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point mm-hmm. anything else? I, I just wonder you know, how he got this message across to see you know, no newspaper. Yeah. And was he just going around just saying this to everybody who would stop and listen? Or was he going into I don't know. Were there synagogues? There weren't even synagogues in This was pre uh, This probably predates synagogues, but it, it wouldn't predate um, city gates and square yeah. areas and, and places where people would come for, for, um, for judgment. So. Uh, I don't. I would have to do some more research into that. There were, and, and he'll talk about some other prophets later in some of the other books. Uh, but kings, temples, people in high places—they had prophets that they would call, and of course, they liked the ones that gave them the news that they wanted to hear about yeah. things. And so, there was definitely a mechanism by which people knew this is a prophet. This is this is the word that they're bringing. And I would imagine. Uh, word has always traveled pretty quickly, especially when bad news is is concerned. And so somebody hears it at the city gates and they go home and tell it to to their mom or their brother and word just kind of spreads spreads that way. So, But I would imagine he was traveling around um, maybe to all of these cities that he mentions um, giving the same note of judgment. What does this chapter reveal to us about God? Well, he's paying attention for sure. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Details of all this stuff that's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. God comes down in the middle of it and says, I have something to say about this situation. God is not a a distant or uncaring God. Great point. What else? I like to hear what means. 
very slow. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, you know, just from the whole book, I mean, it's it's like there there are things that are going to be inevitable. Yeah. And uh, there's there's something that's kind of sad about that, but you know, there were times, there were times that God decanted on the inevitables yeah. if people change. Yeah. But these folks saw no problem with what they were doing. That's right. Being unhappy to change. Mm-hmm. He was about to make them unhappy. That's right. That's right, yeah. One of my favorite verses from from this chapter is, um, can you go back to where it talks about prostitutes and then it's the line about um, laments? Um, Yeah, so they talk about the prostitutes in in verse 7. And so God is really angry because... God was being given tithes, but they were coming from unjust places that were exploiting people, that were propagating paganism. Um, and then in verse 8, a lot of scholars, like, scholars aren't sure whether the I in that sentence is Micah or God, which I love. And it's kind of like both. Like, it's like, um, and one of the best, uh, I think the best interpretation of it is it's Micah, but identifying with the pathos of God. So it's not just that Micah is heartbroken over the fact that Micah's people are going to be devastated, but that God is heartbroken that God's people are going to be devastated. Um, And heartbroken for the things that they've chosen that have ruined their lives to, um, that that would warrant this kind of judgment that is really actually the inevitable result of the sins and of the path they've chosen. Um, so I, I love verse 8 partially because I think it's just such a powerful statement of Micah who isn't looking at his people and saying, you know, um, good, you deserve it kind of thing. I'm special. I'm the prophet. Um, he's identifying with his people, but also God is identifying with God's people, um, which I think is really powerful. Yeah, that's great. So how do we address God's judgment as it's revealed in this chapter? We know, we know judgment is coming. We know the Assyrians are, are on their way. We know there will be exile, there will be death, there will be hunger, there will be famine as a result. How do we deal with God as a God of judgment? He doesn't like he didn't warn them. They didn't know better. Yeah. So, I mean, his judgment is always just. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, they ignored it. Yeah. They, yeah, they had their end of the covenant. They didn't. They didn't. And this is this is after five hundred years of rebellion. This was after chance after chance after prophet after prophet after king after king. Um, of God trying to say, no, this is this is how I want you to live in community with one another. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be a light to the world, and, and you're not being that way right now. I think one of the things that uh, a lot of parts about the Bible, uh, we think very short term today. Yeah. Uh, I look at that and I think, wow, uh, it lasts a long time. Right. And, uh, and you know, we say, okay, we relate it to today, and it will be over tomorrow. 
I think that's an excellent point. I think, you know, when we when we think of judgment, I think it almost has a negative connotation. But in this case, God's judgment is actually good news for the people that are oppressed. We we haven't gotten quite there yet where it talks about uh, but you saw some of it in the in the Bible project video about some of the things that these people were doing. Um, but when God comes to judge the oppressors, that's good news for the people that have been oppressed this whole time. Just like Israel was oppressed under the Egyptians, just like God's judgment came to the Egyptians after chance after chance. Here's here's a sign, let my people go. Here's another sign, let my people go. There, the judgment against them led to freedom for the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And so that was good news for the Israelites. But I think, too, this judgment is also good news for the oppressor as well because it reminds the oppressor, you are not God. There is somebody in control of all of this um, who, who loves, who made people in his image, who wants us to live in community in certain ways that take life and human dignity into account. And so it is great news for those who have been oppressed. But change, this hope, this remnant doesn't happen unless there is judgment. So God's judgment, even though it, it sounds awful, is actually a, an act of compassion because God isn't leaving us in this mess that we have made for ourselves. Yeah. Does that make sense? Does anybody have any challenge or pushback to offer on that? I'd, I'd welcome it if you did. In in some of my recent reading, uh, it's the thing that that we miss, a lot of folks who are religious miss, is the fact that God wants us to want Him, not feel like we're driven or commanded to. You know, He just wants us to love Him. Right. And these folks, they they have trouble just you know getting that concept. That's right. Yeah. And it's not it's not you know I don't know if we can throw stones at them because I grew up in a very legalistic you know God's watching you God's going to get you it's all about the pattern not the 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 meat of the thing God just wants you to love it just love me because you love because I love you back. And not because you feel like you've got to do this. Mm-hmm. And these folks have their got to problem. Yeah. And then they just kind of left that because that's not a way to live. That's right. I mean, honestly, they probably got into all of this stuff because they didn't understand that God just wanted them to love yeah. him. They, they felt like they had to do it. Yeah. You know, it's like commandments. Absolutely. There's a lot of laws, 600 and something, you know? Yeah. Well, they wanted to live their own way, but have it sanctioned by God. Yeah. So I'll tithe, but I'm also going to oppress people. I'll go, I'll go to the temple and observe all these holy days, but I'm also going to live how I want to the rest of the time. And God says, no, you can't, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Like you said, what God really wants is our hearts. And our hearts, rightly oriented toward God, Will, resort, will result in loving behavior toward God and toward our neighbor and toward our enemy. But um, but just going through the motions, God is 
Micah is really puts a huge emphasis on that, that going through the motions in terms of our worship practices doesn't translate into a heart that's oriented toward God or a heart that honors God or behavior that honors God. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really good observation. For sure. More than once, Jesus said, I'm not here for the folks who think they're religious. I'm here mm-hmm. for the people who know they're sinners. That's right, yeah. That's the that's the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So what does this chapter teach us about the prophet, the role of the prophet, all that? We really don't know anything about him, right? Yeah, not much. Where, where he's from. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't have a family background for Micah the way we do for some others, just a, a town that he's from. I haven't noticed it. His time period stretched over those three kings, so... Yeah. You could come up with a minimum time. That he overlapped all three of those. It was probably over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. So it wasn't like he just woke up one day and went outside and did this for. That's right. I mean, it looks like he did this for 20 plus years. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Calling for. For change for so long, and then yeah, and in some ways, it's almost like that a length of time, and then nothing has happened, and people are like, it almost entrenches people further in their own right. heads, <laughs> right? Well, I can keep getting away yeah, with it, I yeah, have this far, yeah. yeah, nothing's happened yet, so nothing probably will. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Some, sometime, probably in this time period, I, I would need to go back to the Greek kings Israel got sacked. Right. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Assyria took them. Yep. I think the Babylonians came in after the Assyrians and, and finished what the Assyrians had started. Yeah. They, I think the southern kingdom lasted you know, maybe 100 years after yeah. Israel, the northern kingdom. So this happened to them. That's right. These people did. That's right. Another thing to remember is one of the cities that he calls out is actually his hometown. It gives him some credibility. He's from among the people. He's not not above the people. He is from among the people. Um, and, And like Fallon said, you know, he identifies with the people just as he's identifying with God. And so it breaks his heart on on all counts. This isn't, there is, again, a level of judgment of this is what's going to happen. These are the consequences, but it's from a place of compassion. Um, And so I think, you know, the prophets spoke on behalf of God. And so it's difficult to to have a direct correlation to that today, except we are all indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so, and we have this community and we have scripture and so I think that there are, um, not maybe exactly like there were in the Old Testament, but I think that there are um, prophets among us today that bear listening to. But if you feel like you identify as one of those prophets, you should do it from a place of humility, of I'm in this with you, I'm among you, instead of trying to burn the whole place down, if that makes yeah. sense. So. Mm-hmm. 
What does this chapter teach us about the people of God? That's right. Yep. And, uh, but anyway, I think all the prophets kind of use the word all. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there were people going around saying, I'm trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely a communal aspect to, to their entire way of life. Because as, as the law reminds us, your actions impact the whole community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as Americans, it's hard for us to understand this. But I, I don't participate in this. Okay, but there, you're, there are still consequences of what is happening. The way other people behave still impacts you. And so, yeah, I think that's a great point. I also, sometimes when, when I read the prophets... Um, and hear about destruction because of behavior and things like that, it's easy to start following this path of, okay, America's on this path, or this other country is on this path, that sort of thing. And I would be, um, I would caution us, I don't want to say that that's not um, an appropriate way to read it, I just think that there's a lot more nuance than that, because the prophets are calling out the people of God, and in that time it was the bounded community of Israel, but today the people of God is the church. And the people of God are on every corner of the globe. And our primary allegiance is not to the country that we live in. Our primary allegiance is to Jesus. And so it's, so it's uh, I want us to be careful about conflating the people of God with America or American Christianity instead of um, is the way that it was with Israel. Because the people of God in Israel in a bounded community versus the people of God today around the world it are two different, very different things. So just just something, I, I know that's a temptation for me to think, okay, if we as a country behave this way, then X is going to happen. And America never entered into a covenant contract with God. <laughs> so just wanted to, to throw it out there. Yeah. What else would you would you add? To that comment? To, no, to, to anything. To, um, well, talk about what does this chapter teach us about the, about the people of God um, I think one important observation is along the lines of what you were talking about in terms of, of communal, communal behavior. Um, and the community is accountable as a whole for communal sin. And I think that's really hard for us to talk to think about when, and it's hard for me to think about 
when we think about um, our, we often talk about salvation very individualistically, um, but in the Old Testament especially, and I would argue in the New Testament too, when Paul talks to, about the church and such, the, the concern is primarily with the community, with the people of God. Um, and I think we, I, I, I love that you put the people of God here and not the Judeans That's or right. the Israelites, or not that they are, he's talking primarily to the Judeans, but we are the people of God. We should see ourselves in the behaviors of, um, of, of the people that Micah is talking about. Even when we're trying to behave rightly, um, what, what um, systems or patterns of behavior or cultures or habits are we participating in that, that further the oppression and exploitation and, um, and injustices against others? And I think that's an important question to explore as, people of the, uh, as, as the people of God. We are yeah. the people that Micah is speaking to. That's right. Um, and so, anyway, yeah. yeah, that kind of just elaborates a little bit on what you all were Great exchanging, point. but. Yeah. Yeah. Any other comments? I think we're just about out of time, but if anybody has a final comment, love to hear it. You know, I think, like, all these prophets make accusations, you know, idolatry and everything else. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to kind of think that, 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 these people, were, that's all they did was bad. Mm. And, you know, what I think his indictment is, is you're doing this too. Yeah. Mm. I, they, these people are probably going to church. And yeah. Mm. So, you know, it goes back to what Wayne said. He wants your whole heart. That's right. you got to want it. And, um, you know, when when some of the prophets talk about these people worship, literally worshiping idols, they were probably going to church too. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what made him so mad. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he probably, you know, would rather have him just go worship the idol and just leave me out of this. Because hmm. you know, you're doing more hurt than Because I think these people probably may have been a little surprised. You know. Absolutely. That yeah. I thought I was doing something really good. That's, that's right. Like we would today. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for Jerusalem to have the same, this be called out by this prophet the same way Samaria is, that would have been very shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know they're not great, but us, we like we're doing what we're supposed to. It would and, have even been considered seditious and yeah. unpatriotic yeah. and like beyond scandalous. It would have been considered almost a betrayal of of Jerusalem to hear Micah say this. Yeah, strong strong words. It's very strong language. Yeah. yeah. I think it is lost in template. But I think you're right. And I think anyone hearing this would say, but, you know, I'm raising my kids. And they're, you know, I'm, I'm educating them. And I, I don't know, whatever it is you want to say, like, right. but I have a family. And I have, I do this. And I, I give to the synagogue. Who cares if it comes from prostitutes? Like, um, you know, or if it comes from stealing from the land from the poor. I think anyone hearing this would say, but I'm a good person. None of us walk around thinking, oh, yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that's a really good observation. And there's a constant, you know, and that's not to shame us. It's to challenge us and convict us and constantly be reorienting our hearts back to God. Yeah. For sure. Right. Well, thank you all so much for coming today. Yeah, this is great.
Hope to see you all next week. We'll get a little bit of hope at the end of uh, at the end of next week. So. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely.